0: Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Esther? This morning we are continuing our series, Faithful to Fulfill. This is actually part 20 in the series, and the series is moving through six books of the Hebrew Bible, the six books that are written during the time that we call the post-exile. Post meaning after, after the exile. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about this history of the pre-exile, exile, exile, and post-exile in a moment, but we have these six books that cover this era. Three of the books are historical narratives, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and then three of the books are prophetic. We have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. What we're doing in this series is we're taking these six books and we're studying them chronologically because they actually kind of fit together like Tetris. Uh, They overlap with each other in places, so we're working our way through them, uh, following the chronology of them. Uh, thus far, we, are, we have gotten our way into the book of Ezra... ...and we pause to cover the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. We return to Ezra, and now we pause in Ezra... ...to cover the history of Esther, which is overlapping with this era. Now, the story of exile only makes sense in the greater story of the Bible. And the greater story of the Bible begins with God the Creator and His creation. Uh, God creates, God pours out His love upon the creation... Uh, he creates humanity in His very image. He gives humanity His love. He exists in relationship with humanity. He gives humanity His will, His law. Humanity rebels against His law, and as a result, humanity is in a state of exile. The paradise that was given to humanity is lost, and humanity is, 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 is exiled from the presence of God, as we read in the book of Genesis. On the, on the heels of this rebellion and this rejection of God's love, God graciously comes to humanity and he makes a promise to them. A promise, another word for saying promise in biblical terms is the word covenant. He covenants in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 to our father and our mother that he would send one through the woman one day who would overthrow the kingdom of darkness and the mess that we have made and bring paradise back. The story of the scriptures is a story of God's grace, it is a story, the first point on your outline of God's promises. As we step into the book of Esther, we are in, uh, in, in a bigger story that began in Genesis with creation and with fall. And on the heels of that fall, overlapping with that fall, is the God who promises that He is going to send one who will come through the line of this woman. That promise is passed to the historic figure, Abraham. That promise is passed from Abraham to his sons, Isaac and Jacob. And they formed the nation of Israel who are God's promised people. God sends uh, the the, the prophet Moses to the people. And we read in the book of Deuteronomy of a land covenant where God promises that He's going to give the people a land. God promised Abraham that He was going to give the people a land, a place. God promised Abraham that that extended promise from Genesis chapter 3 that through Abraham there would be a place and a people who would bring back paradise. This is what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And then God promises subsequent to this to the prophet Moses that the people would be in the land. He promises to the King David when when they're in the land in 2 Samuel 7 that through the King David this line, this promise of the one who would come through the woman, that promise passed to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. That promise passed to King David that the one who would come through this line would sit on David's throne and he would restore all things. There is another promise in the Hebrew Scripture that's of great significance in the book of Jeremiah. It is the promise of a new covenant that would be poured out upon His people. On your outline, you have this graph of the promises made by God on the one side. On the other side of the cross, you see how these promises are fulfilled. And in the storyline of the Hebrew Bible, you have God forming the seed through the woman... It passes from Noah to Abraham and the, the children of Abraham who become Israel. God brings them to the place. He puts them in the land. This era we would call the pre-exile. They're in the land, right? And just like our mother and father, they rebel against God and His law. And as a result, they are exiled from the land. This, this exile takes place through two major enemies of the people of Israel. The Assyrian Empire comes in and wipes out the northern tribes of Israel, the kingdom, the empire of Babylon comes and wipes out the southern. So now they move from this pre-exile where they're in the land, right? They rebel against God. Now they're out of the land, exile. And this is a period of about 70 years. God, God prophesies to the people during this time that he would bring the exile to an end. And he does just that. So in the era of the post-exile, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, God is bringing his people back to the land. And as we've seen before in the storyline of the Bible, the promise of the seed to the woman, to Noah, to Abram, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Israel, to David, this, this promised seed, this promised line of the one who would come, which is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, the history of this seed promise always has its enemies. The title of today's sermon is Public Enemy Number One, and we will see in this passage how the seed will be attacked and the seed will be uh, uh, spun to be Public Enemy Number One in this time of post-exile under the reign of the Medo-Persian, the Persian Empire. See, by this point in the storyline, in this era of post-exile, of restoration, where Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, Zerubbabel are leading the people back into the land, In this era where the book of Esther records, what we see see going on is the work of God, a gracious work of God. The story of Esther comes in the shadows of the exile, and by God's grace, Israel rises like a phoenix out of the ashes and begins to rebuild. There's restoration. Let me emphasize grace, because Israel was not in mass seeking after God. Uh, Many in this time of the post-exile didn't want to come back to the land. Many were happy in Babylon. Uh, Many who did come back to the land fell into sin. As we saw in the two prophets that we have studied thus far, Haggai and Zechariah, and we will see loud and clear in Malachi, the prophets have hard words for the people of God. God brought them back to the land by His grace. Um, And they get back in the land and they're not focusing on the Lord and they're not living for the Lord. And so it's this, this cycle of God pouring out love, God sharing His will, His way, His law, and people rebelling against Him, which displays in the darkness God's great mercy. The book of Esther is a book that records uh, what, what it was like in these days. And so as we have the story of the promise in mind, the greater story, we now zoom in into this, into this era, We move from promise to perspective as we're getting into the book of Esther. Recall last week as we started the book of Esther, this is a dystopian narrative. This is very important to have down in our culture in particular because we don't like dystopian narratives. We like utopian ones. We like stories with heroes who are flawless and perfect we like you know, Clark Kent Superman kind of a thing. We, we like those kinds of stories where the hero is really loud and clear. In dystopian narratives, however, uh, God is working through flawed people. It's really raw, and it's, it, it's real life. God uses really broken people to accomplish his will. I say this because often when preachers and uh, authors of things biblical, particularly when they're dealing with the book of Esther, they biff it because they want to make Esther into... A Western hero genre, where the characters Esther and Mordecai are seen as a kind of Superman, pristine characters who are heroes that you're supposed to emulate. So little girls, be like Esther. Uh, you know, l- little boys, be like Mordecai. But actually, when you read the ca- the text in its perspective, you see, no, I, I don't. I don't want my sons to be like Mordecai. I don't want my daughters to be like Esther. I do want them to be like them in the sense that God used them. I, I, I want God to use my children. Uh, however, God used them in spite of them, and I would really like, uh, f- you know, for God to use my children while they are working and walking in the ways of the Lord. So, this is a dystopian narrative. It is a novella of sorts, uh, a small, short, dramatic story that moves from conflict to resolution with developing characters in the drama. The main character of the book is Esther. She is the Jewish historical uh, figure whose whose name given to her by her Jewish parents was Hadassah. That said, her parents died when she was little. She was placed under the guardianship of a male Jewish cousin named Mordecai, which is an interesting name for a Hebrew to go by as it comes from a pagan Babylonian god, Marduk. Mordecai was no doubt influenced by pagan Babylonian culture. He was a refuge in the Jewish exile who likely adapted to the culture to survive. Further, this, this is the time of exile where God is bringing the people back and we, we see Mordecai has no interest in going back to rebuild. Uh, further, what we see of him in the story of Esther is rather pagan. I have in mind what we saw last week, how Mordecai sex-trafficked his cousin Esther into the hands of an abusive polygamist king, the king of Persia, Uh, Exerces, as the Greeks called him. Instead of being a guardian and guarding his orphaned cousin, Mordecai traffics her into a harem of Susa, where she, along with hundreds of other exploited women, will be used and abused as objects of sexual manipulation and perversion. The other dark part about this scene, again, it's dystopian, the other dark part about this scene is that Esther appears to go along with it. She doesn't say no I'm not going to do this. And mind you, it is not that women did not say no in that culture. After all, as the book of Esther opens, one of the king's wives, Vashti, his favorite wife, Vashti, what does she do? She actually says no to the king. I'm not going to do it. The story reads as a role reversal, wherein the woman of God's people Israel does not say no to evil. Meanwhile, a pagan woman says no and takes a stand. Often in the biblical narratives of, in Scripture, we, we have these kinds of role reversals where the pagans get it but the people of God don't. Where the Roman centurion, to go to a gospel narrative, is said to have more faith than all who are in Israel, right? Where, where you know, the people who should know, who the, the people who are within the margins, uh, don't get it or rejecting or rebellion, rebelling, but the people outside are the ones that God is drawing in and they are seeing it. Um, Often these characters in the biblical narrative have a way of representing the state of God's people at the time. And keep in mind of what we know from the biblical texts of Ezra that we've studied, the books of Haggai and Zechariah that we have studied. Namely, in those texts, we see that the people were saying no to God. They were resisting God and living for their own. Instead of returning to the land of promise and rebuilding the temple, many were chilling in Babylon, now under Persian power. Or they came back To the land of promise, but they were busy going to Home Depot, making Ikea runs, doing their own thing. They weren't rebuilding the temple. The temple was still unbuilt. Mordecai and Esther are snapshots of the people. One is trafficking his cousin, who he is supposed to protect, and the other is having sex with a polygamist. Both are gaining power from this behavior too, which God is using for his good, as we will see when we finish the book. As we step into the text today uh, to have some perspective about this and this dark dystopian world that they're living in that has a cousin trafficking an orphan and a powerless woman going along with it and moving into a harem with hundreds of women who have sex with this one man, these behaviors are, of course, condemned in the Hebrew Bible and the law. But these Hebrews seem not to be products of law but lawlessness. They are products not of the Word of God. They are products of the culture of men. What leads an orphan girl to become a concubine? Like, how, how dark and, and depraved is a society that, that leads a, a little girl to grow up and become this? In modern psychology, we have extensively studied a phenomenon uh, known as ACEs, or ACEs, which stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. ACEs are kinds of childhood traumas like domestic violence, neglect, sexual and emotional abuse, parental abandonment through separation, divorce, or death, Substance abuse, home dysfunction, environmental violence, poverty, physical health issues. If you want a short introduction to ACEs, go online and and, uh, go on YouTube. Look for the TED Talk by Dr. Burke Harris, a California pediatrician who gets into the research impacts of ACEs. It's short. It's like 10 or 15 minutes. And she looks at the impact of ACEs on adults that lead to high-risk behaviors in adults and also future violent victimization and and violent perpetuation and a life time of poor health and i would add poor moral thinking and living to quote dr burke harris in the mid 1990s the cdc and kaiser permanente discovered an exposure that dramatically increased the risk of seven out of ten of the leading causes of death in the united states in high doses it affects brain development the immune system hormonal systems and even the way our dna is read and transcribed folks who are exposed in very high doses have triple triple the lifetime risk of heart disease, lung cancer, and a 20-year difference in life expectancy. The science is clear. Early adversity dramatically affects health across a lifetime. There was a report that I read at Penn State Health News last year with this graphic showing how ACEs impact people way beyond childhood, leading into great suffering in adulthood and socially destructive behaviors and early death. With this in mind, Esther, based on what we know in Scripture, she was no stranger to ACEs. Her people are exiles. Her parents are dead. Her guardian was not guarding her. No wonder she is in in a place where she could be victimized and also go along with it, as many sex workers do because of the impacts of ACEs and trauma. I recently read this 2007 report in the Scientific Journal of Science and Medicine that was titled Associations Between Childhood Maltreatment and Sex Work. Um, According to the research in this uh, journal the case study that they conducted shows a relationship between the level of, of childhood maltreatment and involvement of sex work is incredibly high. They reported the prevalence rate of abuse in the sample were 73% for physical abuse, uh, 32% for sexual abuse, 87% for emotional abuse, 85% for physical neglect, 93% for emotional neglect. Going back to the question, what? what happened to sweet little Hadassah that brings her to this dark place where she's in the harem of the king exchanging her body for position. The social science helps us understand how Esther could go along with being trafficked. An added factor to aces could be poverty, unstable housing, food insecurity. And she might see this as her only way out. I, I, you know, this is the only thing that I have. You know, where was God when my parents died? Where was God when my cousin was not there? What am I supposed to do? Her parents weren't there to protect her and guide her. And that said, in terms of social science and ACEs uh, and adult immorality and poverty, the role of parents is critical to solving these social ills and mental ailments. Two-parent households play a significant role in fighting poverty and providing an environment for good mental and moral health. Mind you, the presence of two parents in a household does not guarantee immunity from, the, from poverty or ACEs or children growing up to become destructive adults, but the stats show increased chances, especially when it comes to fathers and father figures in the life of their children. But Esther did not have a dad. What we are told of her upbringing suggests an environment of societal breakdown, and so that makes sense of this character that's in this dark place. Poverty feeds into societal breakdown. It erodes social cohesion and trust within communities. It increases addiction, crime, violence, exploitation of women and children, health disparities, educational inequality, political instability, family breakdowns, housing insecurity, and more. Poverty and economic inequality can fuel political instability and social unrest and moral compromise. So I hope some of this helps you to orient it As you're reading of this, you know, this sweet girl Hadassah, now grown-up Esther, and she's living in the harem of this wicked polygamous king. Today we pick up where we left off in the text, chapter 2, verse 19. The verse seems to summarize what has been covered already as we get into the plot of the narrative. Verse 19, when the virgins were gathered together. Here you see the king again with his harem. Now, as we get into the plot, uh, today is heavy on history. We're moving through these verses and I'm offering commentary on history. But what is important as you're studying the Word of God and getting the history is that you're applying the Word of God. So, So please, as I'm teaching and I'm moving through the text and I'm laboring to explain it so that we can understand it, I need for you to be multitasking as you're listening. As you listen, I need you in your heart of hearts to be crying out to God as you're listening. Multitask. Listen and cry out to God. Say, God, apply your word to my heart. What does this dark, dystopian history have to say for me in the 21st century living living in a context that is a bit different, albeit we have the same kinds of darkness all around us? Do cry out to God as you listen to the Word, being taught, being explained to you, and say, and say, God, work in and through your Word. He promises that His Word will not return void. So cry out to Him to say, Lord, apply the Word. Uh, I say this because often in, in teaching the Bible over the years, a lot of times uh, listeners want to be passive, and they want the preacher to do all the application for them. It's like the bird, you know, the mama bird goes and gets the worm and chews it up and then it spits it into the little baby's mouth or whatever. You need that mama bird to chew it all up and spit it in your mouth for you. Uh, I'm, I'm not, this morning, I'm not really going to be doing much of that. So I need you to, to feed, I'm going to be explaining it. You cry out to God and the Spirit moves through His Word as it is rightly handled in our hearts to have His way with us. So will you, will you multitask this morning? Will you cry out as you listen? Let's get into the plot. When the virgins were gathered together the second time. Pause. Uh, we saw in our study last week that the king loves the ladies. He loves oppressing women, taking their virginity and using them as toys for his own pleasure. To make sure that they are his own, he castrates male slaves... ...and he uses them as his security guards for the harem... And when he wants to show them off, he he brings them to the king's gate. And as we saw last week, he likes to use his women voyeuristically to entertain other men. Look, but don't touch. Now the text is, uh, is unclear if this is a second gathering of the same virgins from last week's study for the king to grope over again a second time, or if this is a new wave of girls from distant lands who have just arrived. Vashti said no, the king booted her out and, you know, as a part of insulting her, he said, I want women from all around the empire of different ethnicities. Not like this Vashti. I want a different kind of a woman. And so he's, he's gathering together all of these different kind of women. Is this a second gathering of yet another crop of virgins for him to grope over? Or is this just another party with the same group? A wave of girls from distant lands coming in? In any case, we're not clear if it's the same group or a second group, but in any case, what is clear is that Esther has, has, already chosen, has already been chosen to replace Vashti, and now the king is treating Esther just like Vashti, continuing his Hugh Hefner exploits and perversions with as many women as he can house and as many the taxpayers can feed for his lust. Meanwhile, as the king is doing his pimpery, Mordecai... Uh, the not-so-good guardian, is looking for allies as he sits in the king's gates. So under the plot, you have the subpoint allies. When the virgins were gathered together, verse 19, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Mordecai is hustling something. Uh, Based on the way that he handed his cousin over to the sex-trafficking king's harem, it seems that he wants to use her to make friends and influence people for a piece of the pimp's power. And now the King's Gate is where the business and jurisprudence of the city happens. The main entrance to the city is the King's Gate. And this is where city officials, traders, soldiers, artists, uh, busybodies would hang out to keep a pulse on the culture and to be in the know. Archaeologists have excavated this site in the 1970s. Here, let me show you a picture of the site so you can imagine it. Sha'ar Malek, the King's Gate. To get an idea of the size of Sha'ar Hamalek, imagine it's about half the size of a pro-NFL football field. Archaeologists found a massive statue of Xerxes' daddy, old King Darius the Great, there. It is now in the National Museum in Tehran. Inside of the gate, there were two impressive columns that carried the weight of the roof. Archaeologists found on the bases of these columns an inscription that reads, and I quote, King Xerxes says... By the grace of Aharua Mazda, King Darius, my father built this portico. Indeed, he built it on the backs of people. He built it on the backs of people through war, which still today is huge economy. War is a huge moneymaker, particularly for the winners and the manufacturers. Let's read the next verse, verse 20. Esther had not yet made known her kindred of her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her, as she had done when under his care. Here we see, as we saw last week, that Esther is still living under an alias. So Mordecai is looking for allies, Esther is living under an alias. An alias, of course, is a cover that one assumes so that others do not know who they really are. A man cheating on his wife may use an alias for his name when he checks into a hotel in case his wife calls looking for him under his name. In Esther's case, she has not let anyone know, not her name, but her ethnic identity as a Jewish woman. That said, for the Jewish people, um, their identity was to be treasured. It was to be, it was to be treasured that they, that they were Jewish. And it wasn't so much being treasured, you know, with regard to the ethnicity itself, but rather to the relationship that these people were graciously given by God in that seed promise. God's going to use our people to restore this this dystopian world that we're living in. He's, he's chosen us to be a part of this. That's, that's our identity. That, the, you, you're, you're not supposed to sit on that. You're not supposed to put that light uh, 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 and cover it up. You're supposed to let that light shine. You're the children of God. God called you to be a royal priesthood to the, to the nations. You're called to let that light shine. Why, why, why aren't you saying something about this? Now, one of the things that is unique about this book is, as we have talked about last week, is that God is actually not mentioned in the book. God directly is not mentioned in the text. We don't, we don't see anyone praying. We don't see Esther saying, Oh, God, protect me. Um, we don't see Mordecai, Oh, God, uh, you know, help me. We don't see God sending prophets. We don't even see a narrator insert parenthetical statements into the storyline like, and then God did blah, 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 blah. None of it. And yet the author uses this absence of God in the writing to show God's presence through providence of how everything is coming together. It's, it's actually a wonderful kind of literary mechanism to draw you in, though the author isn't doing the and God said and God did and they cried out to God. God's everywhere in the storyline. Later in Esther chapter 4 verse 14 we read of help coming to God's people quote from another place which alludes to God's action behind the scenes working all things together for his glory and their good. All of that said about the absence of God in the story itself it is worth noting that in the ancient translation of the book of Esther known as the Septuagint or what we call the LXX the Septuagint of Esther actually includes supplemental passages. In fact, six supplemental passages. Uh, We just finished, in our Bible Institute, last week's lecture was on textual transmission. And we talked about uh, variations within transmissions and scribes and these sorts of things. So it's it's worth noting that the Septuagint has these six supplemental passages, which we scholars refer to as additions A through F. And in them, we we actually see in the Septuagint that there is a story added to the older Masoretic text uh, that mentions God in three specific places. In the LXX it's 2.20, 4.8, and 6.13. There are, in fact, in the Septuagint as well, expansions to the characters of Mordecai and Esther. This shows us that ancient readers of the book, uh, ancient readers, ancient Jewish readers who are translating uh, the text over, those, those, those scribes, as they were reading with the, the text, they're, they're wrestling with the existential experience of God's people, like, hey, where is God in this? For Esther, where was God when her parents died? Where was God when she's getting hit with all those aces that are stacking up and and messing her up? Where is God when her uncle twisted her to sleep with the polygamous pagan king? For Mordecai, where was God in his life plights? So now, rather than Mordecai praying and trusting, we see him hooking and hustling. Verse 21. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate... Big fan and Teresh, two of the king's officials, from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ashuerus. Ashuerus. So we see allies, Elias, and Ashuerus. Asuerus is the Aramaic name uh, for who the Greeks called Xerxes. Uh, in Persian, it's Kisha Yarsha. And so the Greeks heard Kisha Yarsha and said, Xerxes. Yeah, that's what we'll call him. Asuerus, as the Hebrews, or the Aramaic, in Aramaic, they would say. Um, he comes from a line of royalty and power. His father is the King Darius, as you noted on the inscription I quoted earlier. He inherited a kingdom of vast strength. He conquered and colonized people. Here's a picture of, of his empire. See how vast this is. That's, that's your, you own that. You know what I mean, like... If you're like, yeah, go on Google Earth and you look at where you live and it's like, you know, this is, this is his empire, right? He's balling out of control. So what is Big Fan and Teresh thinking? You think you're going to take someone who has this much real estate? You really think a man whose throne extends this far is going to let you take him down? The text tells us that there is a, a plot. So we see allies, alias, ashuerus, next, assassination. In those days, right, Big Bigthan, Teresh, they are angry and they want to lay hands on the king. The text tells us that, oh, Biggie and T become angry. Granted, it does not tell us why they become angry. Perhaps it is all of this playboy stuff, the gathering. You, you're bringing more concubines? Bro, this is out of control. You know, how, like we got to tax people to feed these girls to do all of this. Like this is getting out of control. Maybe, maybe the king took one of their ladies, and, and so they're upset about that. Maybe this guy, uh, Big Than, is the same Big Tha in chapter 1, verse 10, who along with a group of other guys in eunuchs were commanded to drag Queen Vashti to the drunken fest and parade her in front of the men. Uh, may, maybe they're loyal to Vashti, and they're, they're tired of this kinky king. Uh, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but what we do know is that their assassination plots... Uh, In the ancient world, uh, assassination plots as described here in the text are very common in the ancient world, uh, in the ancient Near East in particular. And what also is common in the ancient world is that informants who get intel on attempted coup d'etats are very well rewarded. This reward would have motivated Mordecai, a man who was willing to put his orphaned cousin in a harem for power, and now he's sitting in the king's gate trying to find intel that will give him more power. Verse 22, but the plot became known to Mordecai. And he told Queen Esther. And Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. The text of Esther does not tell us that Mordecai had a job or an employee gig, that he was working at the gate. Rather, it seems that he's there at the gate, uh, hooking and crooking, hustling, in hopes of climbing the corrupt corporate ladder of the government. I'm amazed by those who read this passage and paint Mordecai As a hero, as some sort of a concerned citizen who is looking out for the king to whom he is loyal. Or they assume that he was an employee who was just doing his job, like Paul Blart the mall cop, you know, just trying to save the day. Uh, Mordecai is not Paul Blart. Uh, He's not not, uh, trying to save the day or do his job. The text says no such thing. Uh, It doesn't paint such a picture. Rather, we see a man who has trafficked his cousin into a king's harem and now is chasing around in the king's court trying to find something that he can give to the king to get favor and power. He's already given the king his virgin cousin's body and now he's eavesdropping for scandals and political news in hopes of finding something that will help him. We don't see him in the king's court regretting what he did to his cousin in the king's court trying to find a way to break her free from the harem. What have I done? I put my cousin in there. I got to get her out. No, he's looking out for himself. Rulers were renowned for rewarding anyone who brought them good spy intel, and old Morty has some of it. The intel is checked. The king sees that it was true data, and so he, the king, doles out a payback. So we've covered the plot. Now we move to the payback, verse 23. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on the gallows, and it was written in the book of Chronicles in the king's presence. Now when I hear hanged, I don't know about you, what comes to mind when you hear the word hanged? Uh, You know, maybe playing hangman in school or whatever, you know, guess guess the word. Which when you think about it is a really morbid game, you know. Oh, you can't guess the word. I'm going to kill this guy on the racer board. You know, he's hanging. Uh, Often you feel bad about killing the guy, so then you start drawing shoes and clothes, like, come on, you guys, and you kill someone on the chalkboard. It's kind of a weird game. Um, Or maybe you picture, like I do, the first thing that comes to mind when I hear hanging, I picture the horrors of the Jim Crow, racist lynchings of black bodies made in the image of God that continued into the 20th century in our country. Terror lynchings were used as a display of racial domination and intimidation. White terrorism terrorizing black Americans beyond the act of lynching, you do know uh, of the practice of making lynching postcards. Uh, Mobs would hire photographers who then would sell pictures as postcards. Many of these pictures, in them you can see whites wearing what appears to be their church clothes, documenting the collusion of corrupt racist churches and the evil institution of slavery and the Jim Crow. We just finished reading uh, the narrative of Douglas in our book club at church. The appendix at the end. If you haven't read the book, at least read the appendix. As our black Christian brother speaks to the white church in the 1800s saying, hey, look at this, look at this sin. According to the archives at the Tuskegee Institute, there were tabulated 3,446 black people who died at the hands ...of racist lynch mobs from 1881 up to 1968. As for the postcards of lynchings... ...they were so widespread in production... ...for more than 50 years in the United States... ...and it eventually came to head... ...when the United States Postal Service... ...had to ban them in 1908. The Postal Service said, no, we're not not delivering these anymore. All of that said, the images of lynching in our culture... ...are not the image that you want to have in mind... ...when you read verse 23... You see, the hanging in verse 23 was not strangulation by a rope. Rather, it was impalement by a sharp stake and a very slow death of bleeding out, shock and starvation, all in front of the public to watch for minutes to hours and even days. This tells you the psychology of of the empire. Mess with the bull and you literally get the horns. You get impaled. Xerxes' dad was known for impaling his enemies. According to the Greek historian Herodotus, Darius, Xerxes' dad, when he conquered Babylon, he impaled 3,000 Babylonians on stakes. Can you imagine? 3,000 bodies just impaled. Archaeologists have located a large rock relief. I'll show you if you look up here on a cliff at Mount uh, Behistun in Iran. This inscription that is here when you climb up the cliff that you can find here, and here's a zoom in and a zoom in, this inscription on this rock relief has uh, three languages with political propaganda that boasts of Darius's ability to impale people. Uh, Archaeologists geek out on this because it is the longest known trilingual cuneiform inscription written in Old Persian, Elamite, and Babylonian. Um, this form of execution, impalement, would later be adapted into the brutal practice of crucifixion by the Roman Empire. This empire would stake its enemies. The Roman Empire would stake its enemies using nails to a large wooden cross, which lengthened the torture. Uh, impalement, you could go for minutes, hours, and some, in some cases, maybe a few days. But in crucifixion, when you're hung to a wooden cross, This goes on and on and on. It's worth noting here in verse 23, when you look at verse 23, you see the English word gallows. If you circle that, if you have your own Bibles, uh, the literal meaning of that Hebrew word gallows is tree. Impaled to a tree. As a gospel preacher, I cannot help myself here but to remind us of the gospel of the triune God and our Father who sent His Son to die on the cross. To be, to be cursed in our place, bearing our guilt and shame. Earlier I encouraged you that while I'm preaching, you know, cry out to God and apply the Word, but I can't help myself but to, but to apply the Word of the Gospel. You know, the Apostle Paul writing of, 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 of this to the saints in Galatia, he quoted Deuteronomy 21:23 as he preached the Gospel and the imagery of the cross. Look at, this, look at this verse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a what? A tree. The same word that is used here in Deuteronomy 21-23 is the same word that is used here in verse 23 in Esther. Like Paul, I cannot help myself but to reflect and speak of my slain Lord when images and words of a text bring him to mind. The apostles preached the slain and risen Lord to any and all who would listen, and so shall we. I think of Acts chapter 5 when Peter and the apostles preached this, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging Him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to His right hand as Prince and Savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. The Son was impaled on the cross for hours for all to see. And in this case, the display, Calvary, was not orchestrated by a pagan king to show his power. Oh no, it was arranged by the king of kings to show his mercy. It was God's plan. Acts 2.22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested you by God. This man, delivered over by the predetermined and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You see, it was the predetermined plan of God the Father that He would send the Son to die in our place. And through His innocent suffering, slaves of sin could be forgiven and set free. The Romans popularly crucified slaves. The imagery then is a role reversal Just like Vashti and Esther, that role reversal. Here's a role reversal for for the only human free from sin was receiving a slave's death. Jesus, the innocent Lamb of God. He gives us His innocence and in exchange takes our guilt and is cursed for us in our place, as we saw in Galatians 3, so that He might what? Redeem us. The word redeem... In the biblical language, is the word that is used for manumission, a word for buying slaves out of the slave market and liberating them. This is exactly what Christ has done for us. Let us rejoice, church, in this good news, in the face of the bad news that we deserve such death in the afterlife for what we have done. But behold, behold, the one who paid for us. Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe, because we, his people, owed a debt that we could not pay. And that debt was recorded in heaven as having been paid in the Lamb's book of life in Revelation 21-27. That said, note here in verse 23 in Esther, chapter 2, there is mention of a book of things being recorded. We read here in verse 23 of the book of the King's Chronicles, or Annals, in which he writes down his own verdicts and acts. In fact, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a manuscript found that is called The Tales of the Persian Court, uh, 4Q550. It has six uh, groups in it, A through F, of writings about Persian kings and their courts, specifically mentioning Darius and his son, who would have had his dad's annals. uh, In fact, in, in 4Q550, it talks about how he would have his dad's annals actually read to him by others in the evening when he couldn't sleep. Recall in the study of Ezra, there is a reference in Ezra 415 of the Persian king Artaxerxes, who was advised to search the annals for the records of the Persia's uh, dealing with Judah. This was the practice of kings to keep a record. And while earthly kings may miss details and render poor verdicts, the king of heaven will do no such thing. His courtroom is always just. His verdicts are always right. And this would be bad news for us, but praise be to Jesus for justifying us by his death so our record in the book of deeds would be expunged and our names would be written in the book of life. The story of Christ appears in the shadows of the Hebrew Bible that we are studying. Speaking which, let us return to the text. Esther 3.1, after these things, King Ashuerus promoted Haman. We move, we move now to promotion. Haman, this character, is promoted. We meet for first time here, this character Haman. He is the, uh, he is the antagonist of the story. If you know the story you, you, of, of Haman, uh, you may want to boo when you hear his name. Haman, boo, boo, Haman. In fact, if you're Jewish, you've been catechized to boo or to hiss when you hear his name. If you have celebrated the Jewish festival of Purim, Purim, which um, actually comes from this book, and I'll say more about that in a moment, there is a custom in Purim where... Uh, the, the rabbis or your parents or whoever, when they're rehearsing the story of Esther and they get to Haman's name, when Haman, Haman's name is mentioned, you're supposed to boo or, or hiss or even grab things and make noises with it. So Haman, boo, or, you know, dirty Haman. So Haman's promoted. Let's look at some subpoints here. The first thing that the text notes is his ancestry. Uh, After these things, King Asherah's exerces, he promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now, if you know your biblical history, right, you you already want to boo when you hear Haman, but then when you hear Agagite, you want to boo again. You know, it's like, Agagite? Boo! This is a Gentilic noun, Agagite, that is used to indicate ethnic origin. The Agagites were the descendants of Agag, who was a a Melechite king. He was a notorious enemy of God's people, Israel. Uh, the Amalekites attacked the Israelites when they were running away as, as slaves from Egypt. They attacked them when they were on the Underground Railroad. These attackers, the Agagites, were descendants from the line of Esau, who is the progenitor of the Edomites, which is another great enemy of God's people. The Agagites were ruthless beyond them attacking them in the Exodus, Uh, Later on during the reign of King Saul, they were threatening Israel's existence and God called called for Israel to combat them in just war for their evils. Keep in mind that Mordecai, as noted last week, is from the line of Saul. And so you have here in the text uh, Haman from the line of Agag, right? And then you have Mordecai from the line of Saul, right? So the Agagites attacked Saul, which you, you can read about in First Samuel 15. So it's kind of like a rematch. You know, it's like, I don't know, like Rocky's grandkid and Apollo's grandkid or something, you know, duking it out. In a recent sermon I gave laying out the theology of the nations, we looked at the biblical motif of the seed promise and the attacks that are made against the promised seed. At the beginning of this sermon I mentioned, Genesis 3.15 and the promise to the woman that then goes to Noah and then that that, that goes to the line of Seth and then goes to Abram and Isaac and Jacob and David and ultimately to Jesus. As the seed goes, the story unfolds and there are always those who are attacking the seed. Which we see here and later we will see uh, this Agagite, he wants to crush the seed. He wants to have a holocaust to wipe out the seed of promise. But this is foolish for none can thwart the hand and the plan of God. God knows what he is doing and God will do what he wishes. In fact, regarding the Agagites in Exodus 17, God decreed continual enmity between the Amalekite and Israel. If you look at the text. You see, the Lord knew this was going to be a perpetual rebellion against the seed. Exodus 17, 15, right. The Lord has sworn... And just think, whose wrong side do you not want to be on, right? God. I don't want to be on the wrong side of God. And yet the depraved do not see this. Many think they are spiritual. Many think that they are living the right way when in reality they are raging like Agag against God, against His people, drunk on their own alleged autonomy and authority, which brings us to the next point. The text highlights His ancestry and His authority. Three one where we left off, and advanced him and established his, what? Authority over all the princes who were with him. Verse 2, And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. And, 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 yeah, boo, there we go. And for the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. We're going to see in a moment that that this angers power-hungry Haman. Verse 3, The king's servant, Verse 3, The king's servants, were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, "Why are you transgressing the king's command?" Haman wants homage. Mordecai ain't about to give it. Now, mind you, when we think of bowing down in our culture, you know what first comes to mind for me is church. I think the only place that I've ever bowed down is in a church service, uh, singing, praying. But in their culture, bowing down was not so much a worship thing, especially not in the context of government official. Uh, It was just a recognition of status and obedience to the king's orders. So Mordecai is exercising civil disobedience, as we would say today. But that said, the text doesn't tell us why he is. Mordecai doesn't say, I don't bow down to Agagites, you attack my people. Uh, Nor does he say, I only bow down to Yahweh. He, He doesn't say anything about it. It could just be his own saltiness that he didn't get the position after everything that he had done. I gave you my little pretty cousin. I saved your life. And this dude gets the promotion? I ain't bowing down to this dude. Verse 4, Now it was when they had spoken daily to him that he would not listen to them, and they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. It reminds me of the behavior of slave masters uh, that we read about in Douglas's narrative this month. Drunken with anger, which flowed from their arrogance as man-stealers in the eyes of God, whose holy law in Scripture actually condemns man-stealing. It's a capital offense, according to Scripture. Like racist slave masters, Haman is arrogant, and he doubles down in his arrogance. See his ancestry, see his authority, see his anger, see his arrogance, the text is describing. Verse 6, he disdained to, to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Asheras. Uh, Haman wants to punish all the Jewish people for what this one Jewish person did, or rather did not do, namely bow down before him. And we're going to see that Haman is kind of a proto-Hitler, and he has his own holocaust that he's planning. Verse 7, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ashuerus, per that is the lot was cast, before Haman from day to day, from month to month, until the 12th month, that is the month of Adar. And then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all people, and they do not observe the king's law, so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. Haman wants to exterminate them, and it's happening in the 12th year of the month. Right? You see the month Nisan mentioned? And based on the dating here, we can see that it has been five years since Morty saved the king's life with that intel that he got um, on Biggie and T. So this could add to Morty's frustrations, old Mordecai. This could add to his frustrations because it's been five years. It's been five years. He's been at the king's court hustling, getting nowhere... Mordecai is like an underground rapper slanging mixtapes and not getting a record deal. And then this punk whack MC comes out and gets the record deal that should be his. MC Morty wants to battle. And in this case, it's not music. It's real life. So he's like, I'm not bowing down to you. And so, you know, Haman's like, all right, then I'm going I'm to get you killed. In fact, I'm going to kill all your people. Notice the mention of purr in verse 7. Purr, that is the lot, was cast before Haman. Uh, what is Haman doing? He's casting lots. Uh, per means lots. It's, it's effectively like rolling dice. He's shooting craps. But it's not just street craps. The, the rolling of the lot in their culture was an act of divination and paganism. So Haman, look up here. I'll give you a quote from a Hebrew scholar, Dr. Tomasino, who explains this. Haman, confident that his plan will be approved, selects a day for the deed. Haman could have uh, come before the king and asked that all the Jews be destroyed as quickly as possible, but, but apparently he believes this undertaking will require divine sanction. Evidence, perhaps, of a notion that the Jews were considering a particularly lucky people chose the month of Nisan for his undertaking. It makes sense that Haman would have cast lots in the first month of the year, and Babylonian thought the opening days of the new year were the time when the gods determined mortal destinies. Since they did so by casting lots, it was appropriate for Haman to use the same method to decide the fate of the Jews. In a sense, he was attempting to control the fate of the Jews and likely appealing to pagan deities to help him fulfill his designs against them. So Haman is using his dice. He's a pagan. Little does he know that Proverbs 16:33 says, "The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord." In other words, the dice are rigged too, buddy. No cap. God controls everything that is cast into the lap. And in this case, God shows his control subtly in the narrative with the dating at hand. The Akkadian Peru, which the Hebrews translate as per, for practicing the casting of lots. And here's the thing. Based on the dating of Nisan to Adar in verse 7, we note historically that this is just a couple of days before the Jewish people celebrate Passover which is the Jewish holiday commemorating their manumission from slavery when the Agagites attacked them. Anyway, it's, it's sort of a, a subtle way that the storyteller is showing you, look, God's in control of this. So while the Jews are supposed to be gearing up to celebrate their deliverance, God was going to bring yet another deliverance. Mind you, I say, supposed to, because we don't see in the text any sort of preparation. And yet this this fits the post-exile backdrop of the people wandering from Torah and not doing what they were supposed to be doing. Nevertheless, but God gives grace and works behind the scenes to remind them of his seed promise and that he will make it happen and he will protect them. In fact, because of this new deliverance, the Jewish people have a new holiday given to them. Next point on your outline, Purim. So Pur is singular, Purim is plural. And this becomes the name of this historical event. The Jewish people have been celebrating Purim, uh, which celebrates how God protected them for the plot of Haman. This begins this year in the evening of Saturday, March 23rd, and goes to the Sunday of March 24th. In Jerusalem, it is celebrated on the 15th of Adar, so the day after, which coincides with our Palm Sunday. So while Esther does not mention God specifically, we see God's handiwork, making a new holy day for his people... ...and reminding them of the exodus... ...as well as this new exodus... ...in the post-exile... ...in which people were to return to the land of promise. It was a time for old Morty... ...to stop trying to become a Persian government head... ...and instead to make his way back to Jerusalem... ...to rebuild the temple... ...and restore the worship of God... ...restore the royal priesthood of Israel... ...go to the nations... ...proclaim the God who controls the lots... ...that are cast in the hands of men. Again, in pagan Haman's mind... He thinks he's using divination to manipulate the gods during the opening days of the new year when the gods are making decisions. And oh, the irony, these gods don't exist. They're figments in the imagination of men. And isn't it interesting that they look just like men? These these gods are just like the hustlers in the king's gate, politicking for angles and agendas. Speaking of angling, look at verse 9. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay... 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasure. Haman entices the king with promises of payoff. 10,000 talents of silver. Um, This has been calculated to be the equivalent of $64 million. Haman is like, yo, king, this holocaust is going to make us money. Let's do this. Indeed, bloody armed conflicts have a way of making nation's money, stimulating economy through military conquest. Um, But Haman, Haman, uh, you know, he's going to say anything he can to get his way because he is drunk with anger. He's allured by arrogance. I suspect he is filled not merely with rage and pride, but also with Satan himself who desperately wants to stop the seed promise that aims, according to Genesis 3.15, to crush Satan's head. Like Satan, when he filled Judas. To crush the seed Jesus, Haman also will fail at his plot of persecution. Verse ten, let's quickly wrap this up. Verse ten Then the king took his signet ring from his hand, he gave it to Haman, the son of the Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The silver is yours, the people also do as you please. Here's the funding for your war. And then the king's scribes were summoned to the thirteenth day of the first month, just as Haman commanded the king's satraps to the governors who were over the province of the princes of the people in the province according to its script, each of the people according to its language, being written in the name of the king Ahasuerus and sealed with his signet ring. Now recall the 13th day is just before Passover. In fact, it is the day before Passover. 474 B.C. The author is foreshadowing deliverance. You think God is going to let His people down on Passover? This is the day the angel of death passed through. You think God's not going to protect his people? Mess around and find out, kingdom of darkness. you going to learn today, kingdom of darkness. Wait and see, Haman and homies. You're going to learn. But first, keep, do, keep, keep doing your, your thing. Verse 13, letters were sent, couriers, king's province, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate the Jews, both young and old, women and children. In one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to seize their possessions and plunder, A copy of the edict was to be issued as the law in every province was published to the people so that they should be ready for this great day. The couriers were sent, impelled by the king's command that the decree was issued at the citadel of Susa and while the king and Haman sat down to drank. And the city of Susa was in confusion. We saw in uh, the last sermon that the king has a drinking problem. I shared with you that in their culture they actually like to get liquored up and make government decisions. Um, I, I suspect people are, are governing powers in California to do that, too. In addition to his sexual uh, addictions and loose morals and greed, the king is, uh, the, you know, is drinking, Haman's drinking. Uh, the drink is not only parallel between last week and this week. In fact, look at this chart by Dr. Tomasino, which helpfully observes the parallels from Esther 1 to Esther 3. In chapter 1, the king is full of pride. In chapter 3, Haman is full of pride. In chapter 1, Vashti says no. In chapter 3, Mordecai says no. In chapter 1, the king is filled with wrath. In chapter 3, Haman is filled with wrath. In chapter 1, the king issues a decree against all women. In chapter 3, it is a decree against all Jewish people. These parallels serve the author's creativity in writing to show that God is in control. God is writing the story. The author is like... I don't have to say God, 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 because the way I'm setting this up, you can see God's in control. Haman is really serious about this holocaust. The king is clueless. The queen is Jewish, bro. What are you going to do? You're going to kill all the Jews? Don't you know that your queen is Jewish? You're going to have the queen killed? Exercis, you're clueless. Haman, you're clueless. You, do you know the queen, his favorite queen is Jewish? God may not be mentioned, but clearly He is in control. And that is the practicality of the text this morning. If you don't think God is in the details, you are not paying attention. God is in full control in Esther. He is still in control today, brothers and sisters. Before applying this to to our lives much further, let me first apply it to the afterlife by way of conclusion. None of these people in the text get away with anything. God is in control of the afterlife, as well as this life. Haman and Xerxes died a long time ago. And you know what? Every day since, they have existed every day under the wrath of God. Mordecai may have helped the king from dying that one day, but the king eventually died. In fact, according to ancient sources, such as Herodotus, Xerxes was actually assassinated later by Artabanus, who was a commander of the royal bodyguard artabanus plotted to kill Xerxes in order to put his own son in the throne and that assassination took place in the same royal palace that we're reading about oh the irony he's dead Haman's is dead his death was not like rolling dice or casting lots it was in god's hand and all evil will be punished this application to the afterlife is not just for despots To make a point about the so-called problem of evil, which is really not a problem because in the end God handles it, this application serves to humble us. And unlike Mordecai, we don't need to bow to this one, for we too are guilty of sin. Maybe not a harem like Xerxes or bloodthirst and egomaniacal pride like Haman, but we too are condemned by God's law, and that's why we need the one who was impaled on the tree of Calvary by nails, who died in our place who rescues us from punishment in the afterlife. Apply the word to our hope of the afterlife, the hope of heaven, the hope of resurrection, the hope of the new earth. Apply the text to the present. What is the application in the present? God is in control. Whatever you're going through in your life, He's in full control. And you might not have a prophet saying, God said, you know, you might not hear a voice from heaven or what, He's in control. Brothers and sisters, God does not bite his nails, and you should not either. I hate biting nails, by the way. My my family can tell you. Incidentally, God doesn't have nails. He's so beyond us. You know, throughout history, people have tried to destroy God's people and go against God's plan, and they always fail. Pharaoh tried and failed. Haman tried and failed. Hitler tried and failed. There is no use in fighting God or his plans. And brothers and sisters, that goes for us, too. We often find ourselves wrestling with Him. And this message today is a call to trust His control. Don't struggle with the will of God. You don't have to spend your time, brothers and sisters, even trying to figure out what the will of God is because His Word tells you. For this is the will of God, 1 Thessalonians 4, your sanctification. Your sanctification. God has not called us to impurity but sanctification what is god's will for you to be sanctified what is god's will for you first thessalonians five sixteen. rejoice always pray without ceasing and everything give thanks for this is god's will for you in christ jesus in the book of esther we see people wrestling with god's will so by way of application let us commit ourselves afresh to following the will of god and to submitting to his way and trusting to his control as we come to the communion table and we now remember Him who was crucified for us, we remember Him who will come again at a time that He is fixed. And in fact, every day is fixed, for we worship a God who is in control of all things. And as we remember Him in the communion table, taking the cup and taking the bread, let us remember that death did not defeat Him. He is risen. He is risen indeed. May His Spirit apply His Word and draw us in repentance and faith. As we have seen the plots of men uh, scheming against God in this text, making God's chosen people into public enemy number one. Uh, we, we left off at a cliffhanger, but we can only cover so much. So as we come back next week, we're going to see just how God unravels His plan and thwarts the schemes of men. But let us not be hypocrites without uh, praying and crying out to God because there's an exerces and a haman in each of us. And praise be to God that Christ has come to dwell in us, to rescue us from ourselves and ultimately from the punishment that we would have coming our way had it not been for the one on Calvary who took it for us. Let's pray and continue in worship. Father, we thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. Come for us. And now we commemorate him at the table with the elements as we picture his body broken and his blood poured out. And we remember that we would be enemies of you had he not come to reconcile us. Lord, may your spirit move and, Lord, point out to us our blind spots. Point out to us the things that we we don't see and the things that we rationalize and justify in our own hearts. Cleanse us, sanctify us. We know that is your will for us. Wash us, we pray.